Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast. And over the next several weeks, I'm going to be sharing stories from my recent trip to Kampala, Uganda. It was an amazing trip and spent with friends from Africa as well as all over the world. We convened for this meeting about biotechnology and African food security. And we heard all these great talks about crop innovation. And we'll, we'll cover some of that here. But my talk was about revising our communication strategy. So that was talking without the biotech. And at the same degree, the star of the show was not a biotech solution. Once again, I regret the name of the podcast because biotechnology is really just a tool in our much larger mission to feed more people with greater sustainability. So what was the star of the show? Well, it was a big blue plastic bin. It was a cylinder. It's about one and a half meters tall. Um, I guess that would be about, what, four and a half feet for uh, for those of you in the old system, um, and about a meter in diameter. It has this locking metal lid and a big white plug at the bottom. And you can see pictures of it on the website, along with the episode. It's a small grain silo. It's made for the African home, and the idea is really simple. After you dry your grain, so you'd harvest your grain and dry it, and place it into this hermetically sealed container, so it airtight, right? The seed is constantly respiring, so it depletes the oxygen from within the container, making it impossible for fungi and insects to live. Now, in the food insecure world, crop losses are due to insects and rodents and other spoilage. A huge part of feeding the future will come from these kinds of post-harvest solutions. Now, post-harvest technology doesn't get its fair time. The emphasis is always on neat DNA tricks and genomics, that kind of thing. It steals the spotlight. But it's critical for us to remember that sometimes the best solution is a simple solution. And that something is marginally technology-like, you know, something that kind of, seems kind of borderline, like a home grain storage bin or even a very thick-ply plastic bag, those simple solutions can change lives in a cost-efficient and uh, really penetrating way. So today's interview is with Brett Ryerson, and he works for the World Food Program and has lived in Kampala for 30 years, so transplanted from Milwaukee. Yeah, you know, we joke about, <laughs> joked a lot about um, watching the Packers and not having cheese curds. I'll let him tell this story. I hope that today's podcast gives you an appreciation for how a simple solution, something right in front of us, can create tremendous change. So for today, welcome to the Massively Effective Low-Tech Solution Podcast. So I'm here with Brett Ryerson, and Brett's from the, the exact name of the organization is the World Food Program. Yeah, that's right. I run the Global Center, uh, it's a Global Post-Harvest Knowledge and Operations Center based here in Kampala. Okay, so we're here in Kampala, Uganda, and one of the reasons I really found this 
exhibit or you know exhibit booth fascinating at the conference was because it deals with the side of technology that is does two things. One is that it's it's a much lower tech, high tech, uh, and it's just as important. And it pays attention to the part of the about food that we don't always pay attention to, and that is what do we do with with something after it's harvested? And this post-harvest window is a tremendous place for an opportunity for either waste or spoilage. That if we're talking about feeding more people, it's one place where we can really control what happens to the food that was so hard fought to develop the genetics and, and do the production. So what do we know about the food waste or the food spoilage problem, the post-harvest problem? Could you give us a little background, especially here in Africa? Okay. Um, on a global scale, uh, let alone in Africa, you're looking at waste between 30 to 40 percent immediately after harvest. Now, it's different between the different crops, but there's been a huge amount of research, um, I might even say too much science or too much research, on what exact levels they are. Is it 15%? Is it 25%? For me, that's the wrong question. They're too big, and I think we can come to a conclusion on that. But what do you do with it? I mean, what do you do with this waste? And if you look at this waste, this waste is not just impacts on, on, um, on individual farmers, but even on a planetary scale. If you look at the biggest causes, for example, of greenhouse gases, right? if post-harvest waste was a country it would trail only the United States and China in terms of impact at a, at a global level. But when you get down to the household level, you have farmers who are forced to sell their crops as soon as they harvest because insects, rats, and mold attack their, attack their harvest. If you can enable that farmer to hang on to their harvest for even two to three months afterwards, what we've seen is really three different levels of impact. First is they have food themselves in their household. The second is incomes on average have tripled because they don't have to sell when it's lowest and then buy back from the same trader when the prices are high several months later. And then the third impact that I think actually may end up being the, the biggest impact of all is that today in Africa there are more people who die from cancer than malaria. The biggest form of cancer is liver cancer, and the biggest cause is aflatoxins, which is you know, the fancy science word for a mold that naturally occurs on the ground. You can't smell it, you can't taste it, you can't see it, but WHO has classified this as probably the most carcinogenic substance they've ever found, mm -hmm. and causes stunting in children, and the hermetic storage, or this airtight storage, actually eliminates the initial infestation, and then eliminates the spread in the traditional storage. The technology is described as hermetic yeah. technology. So what exactly does hermetic mean, and how do you achieve this in this kind of very low-cost, portable um, way? Okay. I think from a technology perspective, it's worth thinking about two things. One is testing dryness of crops, and the second is how hermetic is hermetic. You know, these uh, silos, you don't need to go to outer space with these, all right? But you do need to prevent the passage of oxygen from the inside of the unit or from the outside of the unit to the inside. And in the same way I use the example of a plastic bag over your head would kill you, the, the lack of oxygen transmission or what they call OTR, oxygen transmission rate, be it across a bag or the seals of these silos, uh, that kills all of the insects and importantly, the fumigation that would previously be used kills adults but doesn't kill the larvae that are uh, on the inside of these grains. 
and the lack of oxygen kills the larva as well, so it's a complete elimination of the insect population inside. On the dryness aspect, um, that for me has been one of our favorites, is that uh, you as a farmer can take a, you know, buy a hundred, no, excuse me, buy a thousand dollar moisture meter, and every year to have it recalibrated for a hundred dollars, if you could find someone to do it. Or you could take a simple glass bottle, Coke or Pepsi or Fanta, or I won't express a brand preference, but take a simple glass bottle, fill it one-third full of grain, and then two tablespoons of salt. Shake it for a minute. Salt attaches to the inside of the glass at about 13.5% moisture. You want to store grains at 13%. So we have farmers all across the continent now shaking bottles with grain and salt inside to test moisture. And then we ask them, leave your, leave your grain out for three more days, and then it's ready to store. And um, we've had, again, we've had impact assessments done, not, of course, just by us, but by MIT and by other organizations. And they're showing this just has a massive impact on family livelihoods, on women's empowerment, on food security itself, on income levels. Um, it's not a magic bullet, but it might be as close as you can get. So what are the major crops that are grown here that are most amenable for this kind of storage? Okay. Any type of grain that needs to be dried for storage. So maize is extremely prevalent here, but maize, sorghum, millet, any type of beans. Some of the most impressive uh, results have been with cowpeas, which are extremely, or what they call niebe in, uh, in West Africa, um, it's one of the most sensitive crops, more fragile crops. And uh, we had colleagues in Zambia who ha were using these hermetic bags, and they were using this for the school feeding program. And somehow in the inventory process, they lost a bag. And about two years later, they went back and opened it up, and it was intact. And I thought that was impressive until I heard uh, one of our manufacturers, who's one of our partners, is Grain Pro. And Grain Pro had a five-ton cocoon. And if you look on YouTube, just, you know, on YouTube, look Grain Pro 12-year. And in one of the East African countries, they had the government do an experiment, and the government changed, and they forgot about this experiment. And 12 years later, they went back, and they opened up this cocoon, and the crops were intact. 12 years. So if you dry your crops well, then you can keep them for an ex really an extremely long period of time. So when we talk about post-harvest, and here we're talking in Africa, and in the States we talk about post-harvest all the time, but even in, even in places like in the Middle East, even in Africa, sure. they go through all these very um, elaborate machinations of treatments with salicylates or calcium or all these chemicals or cooling fast if you can do it. But you know, not all these technologies are available to farmers. And so what do people traditionally do post-harvest? So traditionally, the, the farmers are using the mud and thatch, okay? And there are some traditional means of trying to control post-harvest losses, burying it in a, in a mud, um, mud tomb, for example. But that mud tomb, once you've opened it, the insects come in right again. The work that we've been doing here, uh, and again, specifically on the hermetics, the, the science behind it is pretty simple. If we put plastic bags over our heads right now and seal it at the neck, we're going to die pretty quickly, right? The same principle works for insects. And so if you can put properly dried grain into a hermetic storage unit, be it a bag, and there's four or five out there on the market right now, be it a plastic silo, metal silo, 
the insects will die. There's no Lazarus effect. After about three weeks, you can open it up on a daily basis to feed your family or to sell to the traders once the prices go up. But it's, it's you had said earlier, it, this is really basic technology. And ironically, 90, 95% of all of the investment in agriculture in the past 50 years has been on, you know, I, I think valuable research on improving yields. But if your yields are simply feeding more insects, then I think we're missing a big part of the plot. Okay, so that, and that's just an excellent point. And this is what just blew me away about everything that you're showing here. Something as simple as a very heavy ply plastic bag transforms. And, we're, and when you talk about bags and silos, yeah. um, give us an idea about, you know, it, most of our listeners are maybe in the Midwest of the U.S., and a silo means something very different. Sure. What, what are you talking about here in terms of what this bag is or what the silo is? Okay, just a, a question. What, what's the average size farm in the U.S. right now? Oh, I don't even know. But, okay. but you're, you know, thousands of acres. Thousands of acres. Okay, the average smallholder farmer in Africa, the definition that most of the development community uses or the governments uses is less than five acres. Okay, and on average here in Uganda, it's one to three acres. So we're not talking about the silo. I'm originally from Wisconsin. My family still lives there. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin. All right, well, that, that works. Talking about Packers fans. Uh, well, if you want to come watch the Bears game tonight live at my house. Okay. <laughs> we, are, we're, we're, we play tonight at 3.30. But uh, that's a serious invitation if you want. I have two other Badgers that are coming over. Um, but the... Um, um, the, if you look at silos in the United States, you're thinking of these large, massive silos that hold thousands, tens of thousands of, of tons of grain. Here, your average size um, farm is one to three acres. And with the one to three acres, you don't need that type of silo. You need household storage for your own consumption. And on average, uh, for us, that's been about the sizes that we have are just shy of one ton. Uh, up to a ton, and then as small as 100 kilos, all right? Um, so that, for us, that's about 60 pounds. That, for us, are the sizes that we're looking at, something you can literally fit in your house. Interestingly, um, when we've had to modify these to, to actually make it work for the farmers, it's the women who count. The women do most of the agricultural work. There's been studies that show up to 80% of the agricultural work across Africa is done by the women. And almost 100% of the harvesting and the treatment of food or preparation of food for the family is done by the women. So the women have all asked us not only for the right size, but they've also asked us to put locks on the silos. And our question, well, why? It's in your house, and most of the houses have locks. It's right there in your bedroom or your living room. And uh, these locks are now called husband locks because they're concerned about their husbands taking slash stealing the grain uh, for whatever purpose, um, but it's not for the family. It's it's really amazing how when you see what this is, and I'll have a picture of it up on the website when we complete the episode. But um, how how are these currently being deployed, and are these the kind of thing that anybody can uh, invest in, or or are they provided for families throughout Africa? Okay, two different levels. First, uh, we look at the lessons learned that we had in in trying to implement this here in Uganda, and then secondly, what's happening across Africa. Um, we started having NGOs do training as well as do distribution. Now, in my experience, I haven't seen many NGOs collecting money from farmers. 
That's just not their business, okay? And that was our mistake operationally to have NGOs do distribution. We very rapidly after that moved to a model where you have private sector distributors with a profit motive who are the the point, the distribution points uh, for, for all of these hermetic products. So for us, it's moved from that model to this model in terms of distributors to actually right now something where there's a Ugandan company called Innovate that has a digital platform that as soon as the farmer uh, pays, there's an immediate digital payment that goes to both that distributor's bank account as well as to the manufacturer. So everyone gets paid right away. So the entire supply chain challenges in terms of payments, and again, secure payments are an issue in Africa, so this really resolves one of the biggest challenges or one of the biggest bottlenecks in terms of getting this out to farmers. And, and maybe one last thing maybe you could share with me here. You were talking earlier about um, a, a woman farmer who grew coffee and how the market window for coffee is a very valuable one and important for somebody to hit. And you talked about how this bag really transformed her ability to uh, have an income and, and really transformed her life. Could you just share some of those ideas with us again one more time? Okay. Um, the, the other, let me also hit you with, kind of right. first level is, is what we talked about in terms of what's happened in distribution here. But the objective that we have, and there's a lot of different numbers out there, but there are somewhere between, I would say, 75 to 110 million smallholder farmers across sub-Saharan Africa. This is a, effectively 80% of the population. And all of them would benefit by their ability to store at home, okay? And for us, again, we had forays and as the World Food Program and community storage and helping with strategic grain reserves and that type of thing. But I'm a big fan of letting the farmer, these are some of the most entrepreneurial people on earth. If they can make a go of their situations, then enabling them with the right tools. And I, I should note, they're buying these. This is not an aid program where this is getting handed out then they can make the difference in their own lives. Country by country now, my work is to go and find new manufacturers and to size the market. Now, this is a multi-billion dollar business opportunity across Africa. Mm. And I, we've been talking about Africa, but we also have requests from our offices in Kyrgyzstan, in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar, because the challenges in many times are, are very much the same. If you look at Myanmar and Bangladesh with the flooding, a huge issue is getting wet seeds after the flood. So if you can dry your crops and then keep them in a hermetic, because hermetic is different and even a higher standard than a watertight container, then your seeds are actually safe for the next planting as well. So this, this has massive, massive potential. But our work is to actually go country to country and find, and find or nurture the supply chains in the private sector, the manufacturers and the distributors. We found plastic manufacturers in Mali, uh, very sophisticated plastic manufacturers in Sudan, where they're starting to make their own products. And in countries like Sudan, there you have massive potential because you have uh, a government-supported microfinance scheme that is already attached to the agricultural distributors. It's not even a separate microfinance institution. It's, it's at the agricultural distribution level. And they have effective interest rates of about 8%. All right, so you don't even need subsidies for silos in that case. So you really have huge potential to take this not just at the household level, but the continent level, put it that way. Now, you had asked a question about um, um, Carol. So we have a, um, a woman that I've gone back and visited many times over the last couple of years, 
And I think one of the challenges as well is that for all of these farmers, they have been living hand-to-mouth, harvest-to-harvest for centuries. That's what their parents taught them. That's what their grandparents taught them. And to automatically make the assumption that they're going to do um, an economically rational decision based on the assumptions that we have living in Chicago or living in Florida or living anywhere else, um, I think that's unreasonable. So Carol, um, we visited her, it was about a year ago, and she had four bags, each of them 100 kilos each, of coffee. That's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot. She was lucky. But I went back to her a couple months later, and uh, she's, one of the bags had broken. And she looked at us and she said, well, I've got about two years and then I'm going to be poor again. And that was really problematic for us because how do you get the financial literacy level up to the point where they realize that the investment in this hermetic bag which costs twi- it's twice as expensive as a standard polypropylene bag but it has you know literally double logarithmic it's, she's not going to make five dollars from this coffee she's not going to make fifty she's going to make five hundred dollars and to afford a two dollar bag from one of these distributors is the obvious business you can make the business case for it but if you've lived your entire life just getting to the next harvest, then to shift that mindset, that's, and that's, that's, a, that's maybe an extreme case, but for us, one of the most optimistic things is starting to see farmers, and many of them can make this leap, from subsistence to surplus. For us, it's, again, we, we talk about um, all of the amazing research that's been done on crops and increasing yields, and regardless of your position on GMOs, I mean, just amazing advances. But we'd say fix the bucket, then you fill it, <laughs> then you sell the surplus. Yeah, and that's a great way to put it. And that's been such a theme that's come up in this conference, has been how do we switch from subsistence to business or surplus. And the idea of the whole mindset and everything that comes along with that is, is really I never thought about this before. You know, as a Westerner, I've gone 50 years of my life and never really considered that. And it just shows the disconnect we have. It's really amazing. It makes me so happy to be able to talk to you about this. It's just, uh, it's uh, it's something that's changing the lives of people. And it's something, very simple technology that, that we were able, that is able to be deployed. And it just, it really is so exciting to see this kind of thing going hand in hand with the, the complexities, because yep. this is something that has effects today, yep. and low cost, and, low uh, cost. and just you know, and, and a door that is a solution. Mm-hmm. So maybe one last question is, you know, what do you miss most about Wisconsin? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, you have a you have a real invitation tonight to see the Chicago Bears play the Green Bay Packers in my house at 3:30 a.m. 3:30 a.m. Okay, right. so so uh, we have some other Badgers coming over. I, I've uh, I've lived outside of the U.S. now for over 30 years, um, and when I left, I missed uh, I li- I missed the sports, and I missed national public radio. Okay. Uh, and that was back at the end of the 80s, but with the internet now. You can bring it all to your home. Um, I certainly miss the fried cheese curds. Yeah, uh, that I, that I could do. You got to get the cheese curd <laughs> I, app. You know? I got to get the cheese. The cheese curds are good, um, but I'm I'm blessed to have um, uh, my parents are still healthy and like to travel. Uh, they've been here to visit us in Uganda twice, and uh, and I was just back recently to see them. So 
Um, it's actually, it's uh, given the internet and given today's world, uh, I think the things, a lot of things that I like in Wisconsin, I can actually bring here. And uh, we hope the Packers will beat the Bears tonight. So. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. This is a wonderful interview that people really enjoy. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Oh, you know what? One other question. Yeah. If people want to learn more about what you do and learn more about the product and about the, where do, where do they look? So there's actually, if you can, uh, there's a link. Uh, if you just on YouTube put WFP, okay. post-harvest loss, there's a six-minute short video that comes up that really summarizes it pretty well. Presence on Twitter or anything like that? Uh, there's Twitter. There's also on Facebook. If you just put WFP, um, we call it the Knowledge and Operations Center, uh, okay. the, the post-harvest KNOC, the NOC. All right. Uh, then you'll find everything there. All right, awesome. Thank you All very right. much. Thanks a lot, And as promised, that was a very interesting podcast episode with Brett Ryerson from World Food Program. And I really urge you to check out the YouTube videos and other resources that we have listed on the podcast website. It's really exciting to think about ways to feed the future, that the 9 billion people that will be here will need to eat. And we're already investing a tremendous amount of money in genetics and production, but uh, not always getting that food from the plant to the person. And this is just one more way that very simple technology can help to do that. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. I'm Kevin Fulta, and talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.